Good morning, everyone. This is Julie Coleman, and I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel in Arnold, Maryland. Today, we're going to be continuing our series on the book of Exodus. Now, what we're going to look at today is probably the most widely known portion of scripture for anyone on the street. If you don't know much about the Bible, what you probably do know is about the Ten Commandments. People who don't even believe in God know about them, and sadly, they probably think that being a Christian is all about the rules. Now, rules can be a good thing. When I was teaching fifth grade, I began every school year with a lesson on classroom rules, and they were pretty simple. Be respectful, don't distract others, follow directions, listen when others are talking, be kind. Part of my presentation on that first day, though, was meant to go beyond behavior expectations. I wanted them to see what was important to me, that I believed every person mattered in our classroom, that I was there to educate them and I was determined to give them a place where they could learn, that I would respect them in the same way that I expected their respect for me and for each other. Now, I'm pretty sure when God handled, handed down his Ten Commandments to Moses, he had some of those goals in mind for the Israelites. They really didn't know that much about him at all. They knew of his dealings with their ancestors, the patriarchs. They knew about his promises to them. And for sure, they'd seen his great power when uh, the 10 plagues happened, when he parted the Red Sea, crushing Pharaoh's army. Then he'd seen him provide manna and meat and water. He'd given them victory over the Malachites. Well, now God is about to add big time to their understanding of him. Last week, we saw them camped out on the foot of Mount Sinai, where they would end up staying for about 11 months. God had told Moses, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So I want you to remember a note how God begins. You have seen how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, knowing this is important to give us a correct perspective before we even start to look at the Ten Commandments. You see, the law Moses is about to receive is already connected with grace. God redeemed them out of slavery, miraculously delivered them out of the most powerful empire of their time, not because of anything that they did or were. They were not so deserving. We've already seen how quick they were to doubt God and how easily they fell into grumbling and rebellion. Not the most cooperative of peoples, but he delivered them anyway. Now what he's about to tell them is not a condition to become the people of God. They already are. It's already happened. They were being given the law, not in order that they may become the redeemed. Rather, it was because they had already been redeemed and that they were given the law. Now God explains to them what he intends his relationship to be like. He does it by explaining who he is and how they can respond to that reality. So let's take a look at Exodus 20, 1 through 11. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. 
You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let's ask God's help with this passage. Lord, we thank you for um, who you are. and We'd really like to learn more about you this morning. If you would just help our hearts to understand the spiritual truth with your Holy Spirit. If you would help just broaden our understanding of who you are and that we could love you more. And so we just ask your blessing on this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I postulated at the beginning that God was intent on showing who he was in this set of laws. The first thing I noticed as I began to study them was how God identifies himself through this passage. In the Old Testament, someone's name reflects their character. It could point to a person's disposition, their mission in life, or more. We sometimes see God change someone's name to demonstrate these things. For instance, Abram became Abraham, which means father of many nations. So how does God identify himself here? What name does he give himself? Yahweh. Now Yahweh, that's a Hebrew word, was the God of creation. He was the God of Abraham and his preceding generations. When you see Lord in all capital letters in your Bible, that is the name Yahweh. By using that name, God is connecting the dots for the Israelites. He's telling them, He's the same living, dynamic God that was active in their family history and now in their present time. He's the God who speaks to his people and acts. The God who keeps his promises, like, for instance, giving Abraham a son at 100 years old. That's the God they're hearing from that day. Now, one more thing about Yahweh. You know, God has over a thousand names in the Bible, but the only time that Yahweh is used is when it's talking about God's personal relationship with his people. Yahweh is a relational God. In fact, the first four commandments, which is what we're focusing on this week, are all about our relationship with him, who he is, and how we should respond to that reality. So the first commandment is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Now you have to understand, the Israelites lived in a world of blind and superstitious nation, and they worshipped many gods. Those nations had horribly immoral temple prostitution and fertility rites, and even some were sacrificing children. Paul, in the New Testament, called them downright demonic. He said, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And in that world, the Israelites were to bear witness of the true and living God. Now, when he says before me, 
It can mean either in opposition to me or to my face. You see, God will not share his worship with anyone. He is worthy to be uniquely worshipped. Remember, their mission was to be priests. This command set Israel apart in a way that would be immediately striking to the surrounding nations. Every one of them was polytheistic. Every one of them had a list of gods that they worshipped and honored. So, if Israel's going to get them to express allegiance to the one true God, they were going to have to first learn the lesson themselves. There is no other. God has just given them the framework for the rest of his commandments. And if they don't get this one right, they shouldn't bother with the rest. The second command, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. The original language for idol here means something that's been hacked or chiseled into some kind of likeness. Now remember, these were very primitive times. So usually an idol would have been made of stone or wood and sometimes given some precious metal as a covering. So God, interestingly, includes himself in what should not be represented represented with man-made representations. To identify with God with any created thing is merely one step from thinking of God in terms of that image. It would be creating God in the image of his creation, which would put Israel's God on par with the gods of the nations. Israel is not to do as other peoples do by worshiping the idols of their gods, nor are they to do as other nations do by worshiping their own God in that way. And God gives a reason. He says this, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now in English, jealousy has a very bad connotation. But in the Hebrew, jealousy doesn't refer to an emotion so much as to an activity that springs from a rupture of some kind of personal bond, exclusive like that of a marriage bond. Now let's face it, no husband who truly loved his wife could share her with a rival. God also tells them, should they decide not to obey this, will affect not only them, but the generations to follow them. I do want to note that this does not mean that some curse will be put on individuals or that God is going to punish an individual's four generations for their disobedience. And I can say that because we have further explanation on this command in two places, one in Deuteronomy, where it says, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. And Ezekiel also echoes that and adds, the soul who sins will die. So both of those are for individuals. So Exodus 20 seems to be less intensive and it communicates the fact that the degree to which Israel as a nation obeys the commandments will affect the long-term vibrancy and health of the community. It's a statement of corporate responsibility that the disobedience of one or a few can affect the whole. But should they as a nation refuse to worship idols, God promises his loving kindness, has said, will extend to thousands. And of course, thousands doesn't limit uh, God to how many that he will give his loving kindness to. It's actually there to indicate the limitless extent of the love and mercy shown by God. Has said is a love of God for his people. It's a love that's faithful true, upright, 
and generous. God defined his said in Exodus a little bit later, 34, 6. He says this, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that's that word has said, and faithfulness, keeping a steadfast love, has said, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Hesed is a love that's so enduring, it persists beyond any sin or betrayal to mend brokenness and to graciously extend forgiveness. Next command, number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, they knew the name Yahweh, and they knew they were to proclaim him to the Gentiles. So then what does it mean in vain? Well, Leviticus gives us a little bit of a nudge on that one. It says, you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So to swear by his name was a a sign of who you worshipped. But to do that and then fail to perform the oath is to call into question the reality of God's very existence. Remember, a name reflected character and reputation. So to use it for disingenuous purposes or to throw it around flippantly would be giving God a bad name. What that would mean is that you are intimating that God cannot be trusted. You know, it's really more than curse words. We need to be careful about attributing what we think is from God. I had a friend who was dying of cancer and she told her children and neighbors that God said he was going to heal her. And when I heard that, I urged her to qualify that. She thought he had told her that. Because if she was mistaken, it was her that made the mistake, not God reneging on a promise. And she did die. So I'm really thankful she made that clear before she went, before God called her home. To treat God's name disrespectfully is to undermine his power, to scorn his presence, and to misrepresent him to humankind. We never want to cheapen God's name. And then fourth, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God connects this command to his example at creation when he rested on the seventh day. God did not rest because he was tired. He was setting a precedent for his people. And Deuteronomy 5 adds actually another connection for them on this. He said, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So he's connecting it with yet another act of God besides creation to be commemorated. Well, how do those two connect? Well, this is what I think. Israel was now a new nation. Their oppression and slavery they had lived under for 400 years was a thing of the past. And so their new day-to-day life would reflect that they were a different nation than what was before. They were new as creation was at the beginning of time. God was creating them to be a new community with even a new garden promise, the promised land. This transformation would certainly be a striking witness to their pagan neighbors to whom the seventh day was just another day. Now the Sabbath, it was not a burden. It was a blessing. Jesus even said that the Sabbath was made for man. Let's face it. We would work seven days a week if we could. There's always something hanging over our heads to be done. God meant us to take a break, get off the grindstone, so that we can worship and hear his voice unimpeded. 
He created the Sabbath to give the people a chance to renew and refocus on their relationship with him. So what? As believers in Jesus, are we under those rules today? How important are these commands to someone who believes in Jesus? Well, when I was a kid, I was given lots of rules about the rules, things that we should not do in order to keep those Ten Commandments, lots of behavioral objectives, like guarding the Lord's name, not using it in vain. So, for example, I wasn't allowed to say, oh, God, like all my friends did, or even, oh, gosh, which was really only considered to be a slightly less bad substitution, or, geez, was taking the name of Jesus in vain. The problem with getting all legalistic about the Ten Commandments is that God stayed pretty general. He didn't go into specifics. It was a principle he was giving. Why? Because principles speak to the heart. Specific rules only give us an external behavior, a checklist. The Pharisees did a lot of rulemaking and how to keep the commandments. For example, there were over a thousand rules in their oral law to define what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy. But you might be surprised to see what Jesus saw in all of their effort to externally control their and other people's behavior. He called them hypocrites. Their moral uprightness actually kept them from seeing God in the flesh because it was all about them and not so much about God at all. Our relationship with God can come down to the difference between the external and the internal. And remember, God said to Isaiah, because this people draw near me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Following the rules is not a relationship with God. Now think about a marriage. Steve and I just celebrated 40 years of marriage. Now we wrote our vows to each other for the wedding. Keep in mind, we were 22 and 24 years old. There was so much about our relationship that would change after being pronounced husband and wife. And there was so much about each other that we still had to learn. I'd be willing to bet that if we wrote wedding vows now, they would be very different, deeper. More principles like in, than rules, like instead of in sickness and in health for richer or poorer, I would go for what love, God's love, should look like in a marriage. I would go for the heart. And if it's true between humans, even more the basis of our relationship with God is not about following the rules because he wants our hearts. He wants us to understand from these 10 commandments that he's the one true living God, the God of creation of Abraham and his descendants. He is our redeemer. They were his people, not because of anything they had done. Their redemption was his choice based on nothing but mercy and grace, as we too can see in Christ Jesus. He deserves our undivided, complete loyalty. No other God, nothing can be in competition with him in our hearts. He's also way too big to be represented by an image. We should never diminish his greatness or power by putting him in a box of our imagination limiting him to human characteristics. We only bring damage to ourselves and to future generations when we choose our way over his. He also wants us to know that his very name is to be correctly represented when we use it, or we could damage his reputation to the nations. He created examples for us in how to follow him. 
He wants us to do that to demonstrate our relationship with him and what he has done in us. Now that's the God we serve. We can take those principles, what he has revealed about himself, and apply them to every area of our life. They are as relevant today as they were when he first said them. Because he's the same God today as he was to the Israelites many thousands of years ago. Before going into the promised land, he reiterated his intention of the law to them. And this is what he says. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. A relationship with him is not about rules to obey or to break. God has always been about the heart. His most important command, as Jesus identified, is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now next week, we'll get to God's second priority in our relationship, that we love our neighbor as ourselves, which are the last six commandments in Exodus 20. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us. You are so much more than we can ever imagine or think. Help us to remember that when we doubt what you're doing. Help us to know that your wisdom exceeds ours, that you have the power to do the impossible. Expand our understanding as we mull over this passage this week, that we might grasp a little more of the reality of who you are. Thank you for inviting us on this journey with you. You are worthy of our respect, our reverence, and our love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.